Hey there. I was contacted by one of the former students, known collectively as the Little Rock Nine, to highlight some errors in the narrative I shared. In our dialogue, two things came to the surface. One, the story of Elizabeth Eckford not having a phone was missing a key element, and there were actually 10 students, not nine. It is important to me as someone who is respectful of the history profession to be as accurate as possible whenever sharing the events of the past. After receiving the email, I made the editorial decision to pull the episodes from the feed to determine where I might have gone wrong. First, I was able to find reference to 10 students, not 9. The only mention of a 10th student I could find was on the Little Rock Central High School's page by the National Park Service. However, I've been unable to locate a name for the student or exactly what happened to them. Second, regarding Ms. Eckford's lack of a phone. I sought additional clarification since part of my research was a verbal interview Ms. Eckford gave where she confirmed her family did not have a phone and her belief that this lack of a phone led to her showing up unprepared. In trying to uncover a bit more about this mystery, I did find a reference to Eckford's version of events in a memoir by one of the students there that day. In addressing Eckford's story, he mentioned his family did have a phone, but they received no phone call the night before either. This, of course, does not diminish the pain experienced or vitriol faced by Eckford, but it does put the events that transpired into more context. To ensure I have accurately reflected this new information, the episode now contains an edit to the story of how Miss Eckford came to arrive at Central alone. I have not read every source available regarding the Little Rock Nine. As a weekly podcast, I have to limit the amount of material I use, and as such, I try to ensure the sources I do use are reliable and accurate for crafting these episodes. Unfortunately, in this instance, I missed a few key details. I apologize. I want to thank the individual who reached out for being so gracious with their time to help ensure the story is told as accurately as possible. Enjoy the episode. The plan of integration now being forced upon us by the federal courts was set up by the Little Rock School Board and its superintendent and approved by a federal court prior to expressions of the people which have been made manifest since that time. These expressions of the people have been clearly indicated by the greatest time-honored principles of democracy, by the exercise of the franchise at the ballot box, and the expressions of the members of the legislature who are elected by and are the representatives of the people. Governor Orville Faubus, September 1957. Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia, and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Hey, peeps. Welcome back. This episode is the result of a request from early listeners of the pod, Laura, Lauren, and Stacy. When I first started down this history podcasting journey, I shared an iconic photo from the civil rights movement. The photo is of a black girl, hair done and clothes pressed, walking in a sea of angry white faces. 
She is clutching her books and is shielded by a pair of sunglasses and is juxtaposed with a visibly angry white woman who appears to be screaming at her. It is one of the most stirring and telling pictures I've ever seen, and I asked when I shared it if I should do an episode about the nine brave children who volunteered to be the first to integrate schools in Arkansas. The resounding response was yes. I waited to do this topic because I knew the subject matter would be hard. I also wanted to ensure I gave the Little Rock Nine their due because they risked their lives and their happiness in an effort to drag this country into living up to some of the ideals in which it is supposedly founded. There's a lot to cover. I found myself hesitating to nick specific details, and so this request will be a two-part episode. The members of the Little Rock Nine should all be celebrated and honored for their achievement, and I hope these episodes does their work justice. I did not shy away from the details of the pain and harassment these kids went through, so I do want to advise listeners ahead of time. These episodes deal heavily in racism, bullying, and violence, and may be triggering and not suitable for your younger audiences. Okay, peeps, grab your cup of coffee. Let's do this. Before I get into the story of the nine children who integrated Little Rock Central High School, I want to provide some backstory because history isn't anything without some context. In 1954, the Supreme Court ruled in Brown v. Board of Education that segregation in schools was unconstitutional and violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Now, I plan to do a deeper dive into that historic court case in and of itself, So, my Twitter friend, Historian Tibbs, never fear, your episode is coming. But, in a nutshell, the decision in Brown made it to where any state laws providing for school segregation were illegal, but did not outline in their decision how and when integration had to take place. Of course, states took advantage of this ambiguity and decided largely to ignore the ruling of the Supreme Court, leading them to issue another decision, known now as Brown II, where the court was a bit more forceful in their ruling, writing states should move forward towards integration, quote, with all deliberate speed. President Eisenhower was suspiciously quiet after the initial ruling from the court, leading some to believe he was in disagreement with the decision, or, at the very least, was not in favor of school integration. Of the president's silence, Justice William D. Douglas said, quote, if he had gone on television and radio telling people to obey the law and fall into line, the cause of desegregation would have been accelerated. Ike's ominous silence on our 1954 decision gave courage to the racists who decided to resist the decision ward by ward. End quote. President Eisenhower was extremely popular given his wartime service, and many believe had he been more vocal in support of desegregation, the process might have gone smoother. Of course, we will never know, as this is one of those what-ifs in history, but it is an interesting thought bubble nonetheless. Shortly after the court's original decision on May 17, 1954, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP, petitioned the Little Rock School Board to work on a plan for desegregation. In response, the school board announced they would voluntarily work to desegregate their school system only when the court outlined a timeline and method to follow. In 1955, after the nicknamed Brown II decision, the school board announced a plan submitted by Superintendent Virgil Blossom on May 24th that proposed the start of integration for the 1957 school year. 
His plan called for integration to begin at the high school level and then slowly incorporate younger students over several years. It was unanimously approved. In 1956, nearly 30 students tried to register for classes in previously all-white high schools in the central high school system and were denied. When the NAACP brought suit, the judge dismissed their claims, stating the school board was acting in good faith to integrate schools. Eventually. As the 1957 deadline approached, segregationist groups committed to the idea of white supremacy cropped up and started actively pursuing methods to stop the schools from desegregation. One of the groups, the Capital Citizens Council, ran advertisements in newspapers trying to rally others to their cause, writing, quote, at social functions, would black males and white females dance together? Would black students join clubs and travel with whites? Would black and white students use the same restrooms? End quote. Their efforts were aided by the state legislature, who began passing bills that authorized the investigation into any individual or organization who supported desegregation efforts and removed the attendance requirement for all integrated schools. Support for these policies included the governor of Arkansas, who held a meeting with those who were against integration and requested an injunction to further delay desegregation efforts. On the national level, Congress was debating the Civil Rights Act of 1957, the first piece of civil rights legislation introduced since the end of Reconstruction. The legislation was modest and endured the longest talking filibuster in history, but eventually passed and set up the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice and a Commission on Civil Rights. Here is where I want to remind you, dear listeners, all this hubbub was over the idea that children of different racial backgrounds should be allowed to attend school together and that children should have access to equal education. I also want to emphasize that the Little Rock Nine were, in fact, children. Looking at the photos, it is easy to assume they were in their late teens or even early 20s, but the oldest was only 17 at the time. I feel it is important to keep this in your mind when I discuss the horrors they endured and how much weight and expectations were placed on their shoulders. These nine students... Elizabeth Eckford, Ernest Green, Terrence Roberts, Minnie Jean Brown, Jefferson Allison Thomas, Gloria Ray, Thelma Mothershed, and Melba Patillo committed no crime. They simply wanted a quality education. But how were these students chosen? What were the qualifications? Who selected each individual? As I mentioned, the NAACP was heavily involved in the integration efforts, and Little Rock was no exception. Daisy Bates, the president of the Arkansas chapter, was given the reins to select the children and prepare them for the hostility and violence they were likely to face in their efforts to receive a quality education. Bates was responsible for recruiting the students and convincing their parents to allow them to attend the high school and was focused on picking the best overall candidates. Those who were academically strong so the school board couldn't deny their transfer request and mentally tough enough to handle the insults and hostility they would face every single day. Once the students were selected, Daisy prepped them over the summer and acted as a mentor during their time at Central High School. On September 2, 1957, Governor Orville Faubus ordered 250 National Guardsmen to stand post at Little Rock Central High School and deny entry for any black student trying to gain access to the building. 
He doubled down on this enterprise by going on television and claiming the installment of troops was meant to protect the students, and that should black students be allowed to enter the school, quote, blood will run in the streets, end quote. In a television interview given to Mike Wallace on September 15th, Governor Faubus continued to defend his decision to prohibit the children from entering the school. Tell me this. You've called out troops to prevent a handful of Negro children from integration. No. Well, if you, if you let me state my premise, then you can answer it. All right, sir? All right. You say that you did this to prevent violence. <clears throat> now, let me ask you this. Why did you not instead assign a dozen troops to escort each Negro child to and from classes, thereby preventing violence and obeying the order of the court at the same time. Because the best way to prevent the violence was to remove the cause. You would not have removed the cause by that type of activity. You would have had the eminence of disorder and violence within the school and outside the school. And whether or not it breaks out in the school, it could break out in other sections of the city. The students, who would later infamously be known as the Little Rock Nine, were scheduled to begin the integration process on September 4, 1957. According to a retelling of events by Elizabeth Eckford, Daisy Bates and the NAACP had arranged for some ministers to join the students at the school. Eckford was not aware of this plan and happened to arrive ahead of her classmates and faced the hostile crowd alone. Her long, lonely walk was captured on film, it is Elizabeth Eckford in that infamous photo. Alone, with only a pair of sunglasses as protection, Elizabeth, understandably terrified and scanning the crowd for a friendly face, was met instead with hatred. Her fellow classmates had arrived, however, were unable to get to her thanks to the gathering crowd. She managed to make it to the school entrance, but was blocked by the guardsmen. After attempting to squeeze through, she gave up and passed back through the angry faces, who hurled insults, threatened to lynch her, and closed in around her to intimidate her. According to a later report from Eckford, the students grew increasingly hostile and began yelling things like, drag her over this tree, let's take care of that, n-word. Elizabeth made it successfully to a bus stop where she was on the verge of tears. At least one friendly person was in the crowd, a reporter from New York named Benjamin Fine, who apparently sat with Eckford and told her, quote, don't let them see you cry, end quote. Elizabeth safely made it onto the bus and managed to get home without physical harm. In the weeks that followed, the students were left in a bit of limbo with the governor requesting a delay in integration efforts, though he still purportedly supported the idea of desegregation. Finally, on September 23rd, the students were allowed to enter Central High and were escorted to the principal's office to receive their class assignments. Almost 1,000 angry white nationalists had gathered and became incensed when they heard the students had successfully entered the building. Fearing for their safety, the students were escorted off the premises through a side entrance. Upon seeing the anger and potential for violence on television, and in response to a telegram from the mayor of Little Rock pleading for federal assistance, President Eisenhower federalized the National Guard troops and required they comply with the law and allow desegregation to commence. To ensure safety, the president ordered about a thousand paratroopers from the 101st Airborne Division to report to Little Rock and guard the students. The 101st Airborne Division is the same squad who landed on Normandy during World War II. Again, a thousand troops 
were sent in to protect nine children from going to school. On September 25, 1957, under the protection of the United States Army, the Little Rock Nine entered the school. Central High School was officially desegregated. Of course, the story doesn't end there. Just because the students were safely escorted into the school doesn't mean they were entirely safe. Their guards were not allowed on school grounds, and so each of the nine students had to deal with daily torments. White students would jump out of windows to avoid being in the same room as their black classmates. They were routinely spit on, kicked, called names like baboon, physically intimidated with books knocked from their hands. And one student, Carlotta Walls Lanier, later wrote, quote, I learned early that while the soldiers were there to make sure the nine of us stayed alive, for anything short of that, I was pretty much on my own, end quote. This is where I'm going to end this part of the series on the Little Rock Nine. Come back next week where I will dive into the individual members who made up the cohort and discuss what they did after the infamous 1957 school year. I will also discuss a bit about what happened after the desegregation took place and what impacts it has on today's school systems throughout the country. Thanks for sticking with me there, peeps. I'll see you next week. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider a rate and review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Your reviews help bring a smile to my face and also help spread the word. Also, you can support your indie podcaster here through Buy Me a Coffee. Your donations go to the book and caffeine supply needed to keep these wheels churning. You can find out more about how to support the show by visiting the website at www.civicsandcoffee.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Mm -hmm.